talking. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, November the 26th. First, I'll be talking to Jason Eisner, a co-founder of BrandQuest, a strategy, culture and brand mentoring company, and he'll talk about whether businesses can run discounts in a difficult economy. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and jobs figures. But now, let's talk to Jason Eisner. Jason, tell us, how do people discount during an economic downturn? What are the rules? What are the rules? Well, I don't think there are many rules. I think that's the uh, that's the most important thing. I think people during an economic downturn kind of just get scared. And I think, especially in Australia, one of our first things that we do is we just go straight to discounting. Which, of course, uh, affects your profits. Well, it affects a whole lot of things. And, and so it's, it's kind of a last resort type thing to, to do. And, and uh, one of the things that it really does is it actually, just, it basically destroys your brand. Now, it depends on how much you've built up your brand and so forth, but it's not a great way. It, it's a, a very quick fix to an ongoing problem that if you were to just, like it's, it's probably the last resort to turn to and people turn to use it as their first resort. What are, what are the rules? I mean, why is price important? Well, that, that's a really good point. Um, what is price? Well, price, I mean, if you think about it, price from, a, from an economics point of view is kind of everything that your business is about. It has both demand and supply in, involved in it. And, and so one of the things that you, you do there is that if you, certainly from a, you know, I've, I've come from a, a branding and marketing perspective, you can sum up everything that we do in price because price has the, both the demand and the supply. So, and in demand is everything to do with how, what your product is worth and how much people like it and, and, and all these sort of things. And so that's often what, why, why price is, is, is really important. And it's also, by the way, the easiest thing that you can turn to. It's the quickest fix that you can do. So if you want to do something and see immediate return, change the price. And it's, it's something that gets, gets used in my opinion, way too often. There are rules around it, as you, as you pointed out to it, but it just gets used way too quickly and way too often. And probably 
a very short-term viewpoint when, when in reality, if you had a bit of thinking about it, it mightn't be the best way to go. So, so does, that, does that answer that question? But in terms of rules, you know, there are a few rules to think about. There are some times when price, you know, it is worthwhile discounting. And then there are some times when we would, would recommend against it. So when is it worth discounting? Well, it depends. Look, if your brand is a discount brand, if you're a low cost brand and your brand is always a discounted brand and really the, way, the reason why people come to you is because it's a discount, then there's probably a reason to discount it at every point in time. That, that's certainly thing. Another time when you might want to discount is when you have lots of product and you do want to get rid of it, but you know, you have an oversupply. There is a reason to discount at that point in, in our viewpoint. And there, there you might well, there might be a reason to, to do that. So even, even great brands like Apple on Black Friday will discount their product, but that's probably the only time a great brand like that would discount. There might be a reason that you're entering in a new market and you want to get some customers, you know, early, you know, if you're a new entrant into a market, there might be a reason to discount. And finally, if you're in a very competitive market with a very similar product and everybody else goes on discount, then there also might be a reason to discount. Well, then you're getting into price wars. And, 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 it's, and in Australia, it seems to be a thing that, that, that that's what we've done. We've almost conditioned all of our, our consumers that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom. So the way to think about this is if you have a brand at all and you put money into your brand, if you, if you have a brand and you put lots of money into it and you built it and you built it over time, discounting is kind of eroding that. There's, there's, it, it, it basically says the value of my brand is actually not as much as what I priced it at. I'm going to discount it and your value go. And, and, and I'm saying, you know, you shouldn't need to pay full price for my brand. It's not worth it. And the best brands in the world don't. So what you're saying is if you're setting a price, it has to be in conjunction with a marketing strategy. Oh, absolutely. And, and what happens is a strategy, as you're saying, is about thinking about the long term. And price is a very short term mechanism that you can change over time. And so what happens is it's very often the way that price normally works is everybody starts to, to get scared and they use a short term lever like price. And then the reality is, is it actually affects their long-term strategy. You mentioned Apple and they hardly ever discount because they have a brand and a marketing strategy. They'll never discount. And, you know, so when we say never discount, if you are a business customer, you might be able to get three or 4%. If you're a student, you might be able to get it or school education, you might be able to get a discount, but it's very minor. It's normal. You know, I would never be more than, 10% 10% I would at the most and they they're able to control their price and they actually have a price premium so it's not even that they discount is if you take a similar product a phone a computer they're normally a thousand you know a considerable amount more than the the competitive product Samsung phone to an Apple phone the Apple phone is more expensive and so they actually use price in the opposite way to actually build in it actually builds into their brand, their price, that, that this is a quality product and so forth. So it, it can actually go the other way. Price actually sets expectations of where you get placed in the market and so forth. Other examples of that would be cars like Mercedes-Benz, BMWs, Audis. They don't discount as opposed to, say, a Kia or a Suzuki. Yeah. Look, they do. At the end of the year, they might discount by offering off you know, not paying 
you know, the car tax, you know, luxury car tax, or they might do not charge GST, but it's, it's, it's very, very small compared to the, to, to more discounted brands. However, having said that, the difference between some of those brands is that, that they have franchisees and they get control of the price. So you, they, the, but to a, in general, the brands, the big luxury brands tend not to discount because they realize that if you put lots and lots of money into building your brand, you're actually, all you're doing is destroying that brand value if you discount too much. How do you determine, if, I, you know, if I'm a business, how do I determine whether I should discount? Well, we, 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 we developed a little framework here, but, but effectively, um, the way we, we look at it is this way. And I'm going to try and draw this in a, uh, in a podcast. But if you think about an axis of price versus quality service, um, so, the, so let's call it the y-axis, the vertical axis is price. And that goes from low to high. And the x-axis, the, the, the horizontal axis is quality service. And that goes from low to high. The, if you were to break that up into a quadrant, what you would have is that in, in, if you're reading from the top right quadrant, um, a, a, you would have prestige right up the top, top high price, high quality. And in the bottom left quadrant, you would have budget commodity. That's a low price, low, low quality. The other two are interesting. If you have a low quality or service and high price, that's kind of a monopoly uncompetitive situation, which not too many people exist in there. But if you were a monopoly, certainly, you know, if you think back to what was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we had monopolies like telecom and those sort of things, you, you could put them in there. And the other quadrant is the bottom right quadrant, which is the across, which is where you have basically high quality service and, and, and not as high price. Like it's, it's, it's a lower price. You have these four quadrants. So, and, and that's the value almost mastige market. And so the way to think about this is if I am in the top right prestige premium market, they're really, you're pretty hard pressed to, to discount. Wouldn't, wouldn't be thinking about doing that at all because you've actually got a high value product, high service, it costs a lot. Why would you discount? Similarly, if I was in the budget commodity market with low price, low quality, then I think I would be, you know, that's, that's kind of where you are in this discount thing. And it's a, it's a race to the bottom, but you know, sometimes there are brands in there that are always low price and that's what they sell on. I mean, the way to think about that maybe is Audi where they have low prices. They, 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 their actual economic model is a low price that they probably have quite good quality, but they, they, the way they're selling on is, is this low price uh, model. You, you then have these other two quadrants, the monopoly one, if you're in you know, the top right of this, this thing where you're high priced and, and low service, then it probably doesn't make sense to discount. And finally, the one that's of interest is the one where you are high quality service, but you actually at a lower price point, which is, you know, and, you know, you, you have to think about these brands where they, you know, they've changed the economic model. There, you might well be able to discount because you're adding, you know, you, your your price point, the way you get to the market is much, you know, your your business model is much, it's completely different to what exists in the marketplace. And there, you might think about discounting. Well, in that case, that would require each business in this market to actually look at what their business model is and work out where they sit in that market. And that requires some very hard questions. It does. And, and I think the, the, the point is, I think what it says to you is, 
by sitting down and thinking about it, it means that you're not actually going straight to the lever, oh, I'm just going to discount the price. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of what you think you see. I mean, you, you think about it, the department stores do this all the time. They are always on sale and they're taking, they're taking quality brands and discounting them. Now, even as a brand manufacturer, as somebody going into that, like I would be, you know, that's also a problem because you're actually discounting my value. Like I set a certain price and you're cutting it all the time. But as the organization, like the department store, you're constantly using price to bring people in. It's, and, 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 and then people get conditioned, margins go down, the whole thing, the whole business model starts to, to unwind. Which is why department stores are in major trouble at the moment. Yeah. And that's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, Jason, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. What do you make of the latest jobs figures and the wages figures? Well, there was a lot to take out of the, the data that came out last week and this week. The, the jobs figures were, were pretty weak overall. They're obviously still impacted by those lockdowns in New South Wales and, and Victoria. Uh, employment fell by 46,000 people. It's down by 334,000 people since July. So that's a decline of 2.5%. So obviously, from from that perspective, the jobs market has been pretty weak. Of course, now with both uh, New South Wales and Victoria opening up, it is likely that that, uh, work is going to flood back into the the labour market. Employment is going to spike quite sharply, as it has done in, in previous lockdowns. And we'll get those employment figures back to where we were before uh, those extended lockdowns began. The wage data was also interesting. Um, So up 0.6% in the September quarter, which is a a reasonably good result. Overall wages are up 2.2% over the year, which is back to where we were before the pandemic began. I think the big number, though, is the private sector wages are up 2.4% over the past year. And that's actually the strongest annual result since December 2014. So we're making some progress uh, on that front. Okay, but we're still a long way off from getting anywhere near 3% in wages, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's small steps, but it is a step in, in the right direction. We haven't hit 3% wage growth in about eight years. Um, and it's still going to take a, a little bit more time before we can achieve that. Now, there's cause to be optimistic. There's, you know, job creation is very strong right now. There's high level of job vacancies strong number of uh, job advertisements. And normally that means that employment is going to pick up, that the unemployment rate is going to go down, and that should feed into uh, greater wage pressures. But so far, I mean, wages are reasonably low across most industries. There's there's only one industry at the moment that has wage growth above 3%. That's professional services at 3.4%. There's a couple of other industries such as construction, accommodation, food services that are in the 2.5% range. So they're heading in the right direction. But then there's a range of industries where wage growth is still below 2%. So while these skill shortages are emerging, while there is some difficulty filling some roles, it hasn't been sufficient to cause wage growth to to pick up to where we need it to be, which is above that 3% threshold. Well, what was interesting with the wages figures, I was looking at some of the data on uh, individual agreements and there was a significant portion, something like 30, more than 30%, had been waiting more than uh, close to two years to get any wage rise. Yeah, that's right. You know, wage freezes were a common occurrence throughout the, the first year of the pandemic and, and slowly we're seeing a bit of catch-up on the wage front, particularly with the agreements that are being made, both individual enterprise 
and and awards. So that that is a, a good sign. But the individual enterprise agreements and and the way the system works does mean that there is going to be a bit of a delay between what's happening with labour market conditions, which in general appear as though they are going to improve, that the labour market's going to get tighter, and that actually feeding through to, to stronger wage growth. These agreements aren't updated regularly. For the most part, they're usually updated once a year or thereabouts, which, which means that there could be a little bit of a delay between us getting a very low unemployment rate and I think there's a, a chance we're maybe in that low 4% range early next year, and that's flowing through into greater wage pressures. Right, but it would all indicate that the pandemic has actually caused a lot of difficulty with people's living standards. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah, wage growth was very low throughout the first year of the pandemic. Uh, it's obviously gradually improving now. But, yeah, a lot of workers were dealing with wage freezes during a, a very difficult period for, for households. Um, so it's good to see that that's beginning to change, but there's obviously still a, a long way to go yet. The uh, unemployment actually went up to, what, 5.2%. Uh, that was, what, because more people were coming in to back into the workforce, so there weren't enough jobs to be filled? How, what, what's the explanation of that? Yeah, we saw a bit of a, a tick up in participation um, during October, and, and that was because, well, it was largely in anticipation of Sydney opening up, easing their restrictions. So employment in New South Wales bounced back a little bit in October after falling considerably over the, the previous three months. And so that, that's really what was happening there, people flooding back into the workforce because they could, because the economy uh, was beginning to, to reopen. So that wasn't necessarily a bad sign, particularly when you consider that the unemployment rate is consistently understated for states that are in lockdown. Um, we, we've seen that with New South Wales and Victoria recently, where the unemployment rate at 5.4%, 5.6% in both those states is actually reasonably low. And yet there's a lot of people out of work and participation is quite low as well. So as these lockdowns get lifted, uh, one of the consequences of that is that people flood back into the workforce and the unemployment rate in both New South Wales and Victoria might actually increase a little bit in the near term. Uh, even though more people are, are finding jobs. So it's it's a bit of a weird dynamic there. Um, but I don't think it's too much to be concerned about because we are going to see hundreds of thousands of, of people across both states re-enter the workforce over the next two to three months. And that will cause the, the unemployment rate to get back to roughly where it was before those lockdowns began. And that's going to bring down the, the national average as well. So you can see it going down closer to uh, 4%. Look, I think over the next six months, certainly over the next 12 months, we are going to see an unemployment rate in that low 4% range. The level of job creation across the country right now is as high as we've ever seen. Uh, it's particularly strong in both New South Wales and Victoria, which is a key indicator that both states, from an economic perspective, are going to rebound strongly now that they're, they're opening up. And I think all signs point to a, a further tightening in the labour market. I think we can be pretty optimistic about what's happening in that space and what it means for jobs going forward. So, yeah, don't be surprised if we're seeing an unemployment rate in that low 4% range, which is something we haven't seen since the global financial crisis began all the way back in 2008. So, uh, but the, there's an issue too about closed borders. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot of uh, businesses are saying they've got a skill shortage as well. Yeah, anecdotally, a lot of the businesses I talk to uh, talk a lot about it being difficult to find suitable staff for some roles, in particular finding enough candidates. Sometimes I'll only be able to find one or two okay candidates, but they're not getting as many people as they were before the pandemic began. And that's contributing to the calls to open the borders and to increase the, the level of immigration across the country. And to some degree, that makes sense because Australia's population has barely grown over the past year. It's increased by just uh, 0.1% which compares to a 1.5% annual increase in population before the pandemic began. Uh, it's particularly problematic in places such as Victoria, where population growth before the pandemic was 2%. Now it's actually contracted by about 0.6% over the, the past year. So that's creating a, a really difficult dynamic for recruiters, which is one of the reasons why skill shortages do appear to be emerging. That said, those skill shortages haven't yet contributed to a material increase in, in wage growth. Um, so businesses, while they are struggling to fill some roles, they don't appear to be willing to increase uh, what they're offering in terms of pay or benefits or conditions. Do you expect the uh, skill shortages will in time contribute to wage growth? Well, the longer these skill shortages persist, the more likely it is that businesses will need to address that. Um, and they'll address that through increasing compensation and other benefits. The skill shortages that we're dealing with at the moment have sort of lasted for basically the last 12 months or so, uh, following the, the reopening of the economies last year. Uh, I think as we push into year two of that, the pressure on recruiters and businesses to fill some of these roles will get greater and businesses will begin to uh, pass on higher wages in order to attract better talent. Now, the $64 question is, where does that leave the RBA? The RBA is insisting they're going to stick to their 2024 deadline before raising rates, but there's a school of economists who are saying, no, it could be as next year. Yeah, there's a bit of a divergence between the RBA and other economists right now. I think the RBA is playing it very cautious, and I think one of the reasons for that is because they've been burned in the past by being too optimistic about wage growth. Um, they consistently overestimated wage growth in that post-2014 period, often to a very large degree. And so I think they're a little bit gun-shy at the moment. They're, they're playing a little bit cautious so that they don't make that mistake again. So I think there is a little bit of upside to, to wage growth due to the strong job creation that we're seeing. But we, we do know, and the Reserve Bank has done a lot of research on this, that it takes a longer time now for those changes in labour market conditions to translate into higher wages. I mean, that's because of the individual enterprise agreements that are in, in place. So that, that flow through of a tight labour market does take a little bit longer than it has in the past. 
Um, so that's one thing to, to bear in mind. But I, I do think overall there is a fair bit of upside risk to the RBA's forecasts on unemployment uh, as, as well as inflation, and that could certainly trigger a, a rate rise before that 2024 deadline. I think the Reserve Bank will be a little bit cautious. They don't want to pull the trigger next year, but certainly if conditions warranted it, if wage growth was above 3%, uh, I think they would certainly change their tune pretty quickly. Well, Callum, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Joe Biden nominated Jerome Powell for a second four-year term as US Federal Reserve Chairman and elevated Governor Lael Brainard to Vice Chair in a politically expedient move that also maintains continuity at the central bank as it deals with a 31-year high in inflation. In announcing the nominations on Monday... President Biden said both Mr Powell and Dr Brainard had helped achieve a successful economic recovery from the pandemic and that he was confident they would control inflation. Powell will confront significant challenges as he embarks on four more years as America's top monetary policymaker, chiefly how to manage an economy that is not back to full employment at a time of uncomfortably high inflation. Powell will also be under pressure from progressives to understand and address the economic and financial market implications of uncontrolled wildfires, super powerful hurricanes and other devastating impacts of climate change. Fed officials have also become more outspoken on racial and gender inequities to drag on economic growth. And a COVID-19 spike across Europe and the US has hit the equity market and threatens to stunt the global economic recovery, despite vaccines, treatments and a willingness among consumers and businesses to adapt to pandemic restrictions. The lockdown imposed in Austria beginning this week has pressured neighbouring Germany to consider similar measures, while case numbers have begun to climb across the continent, sapping European shares and pushing back rate hike expectations for the European Central Bank. In the US, a surge in new infections has again caused angst over the potential hit to economic growth and has depressed share prices in a plunge that extended to Australia on Monday. The S&P ASX 200 fell 0.6% as travel stocks and businesses with broad exposure to European and American markets fell, including travel agents and airlines. Declines for flight centre, corporate travel management and Qantas have been among the top losses, reflecting a rethink of previously bullish sentiment after the Delta COVID-19 wave earlier in the year. And business owners are being told they should set their own rules on whether customers and staff have to be vaccinated in a message from Prime Minister Scott Morrison that takes on state premiers amid uproar in federal parliament over vaccine mandates. With some of his own Liberal colleagues moving against the government on vaccine rules, Mr Morrison tried to quell a damaging dispute in Parliament by insisting he would not enforce employers to demand vaccinations for their workers and customers. The claim puts the Prime Minister at odds once more with state health orders that ask retailers, event organisers and others to ask for proof of vaccination, as the issue sparks public protests and fury from Conservatives, including Pauline Hanson's One Nation. The government was thrown on the defensive on Monday when Senator Hanson sought to pass a private bill in the Upper House to overturn the health orders, gaining support from five Liberals and Nationals who crossed the floor to defy Mr Morrison. The One Nation bill was backed by Liberal Senators Conchetta Firaventi-Wells, Gerard Rinnick and Alex Antic, as well as National Senator Matt Canavan and Sam McMahon in a sign of the deep grievances over state rules that impose greater restrictions on those who are not vaccinated. Senator Hanson and a colleague Malcolm Roberts were participating online and could not vote, while Liberal Senator Eric Arbitz abstained rather than siding with the government in the majority vote to block the bill. Tasmanian Independent Jackie Lambie 
angrily denounced the One Nation move and argued for controls that allowed more liberty for who signed up for the vaccine, saying people had to think of others. And Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce is poised to appoint a former regional mayor from his New South Wales electorate of New England as chairman of the federal government's independent infrastructure advisory panel on a six-figure salary. The opposition used federal parliament on Tuesday to attack Mr Joyce's links to Cole Murray, who retired after 11 years as mayor and four terms on the Tamworth Regional Council earlier this month, accusing Mr Joyce of showing contempt for impartial infrastructure advice. He's expected to be announced as his chairman of Infrastructure Australia, an independent statutory body that provides research and advice to all levels of government and industry on projects and reforms relating to investment in infrastructure on Thursday. The body's latest list of priority projects announced early this year had a combined value of at least $59 billion. Mr Murray, who told magazine The Monthly last year that he was a fairly solid Barnaby supporter, has a history in the construction industry and has chaired several regional local government lobby groups during his career in local government. He's also on the board of the University of New England. Labor's infrastructure spokeswoman, Catherine King, criticised Mr Murray's appointment during question time, contrasting him with the first chair of the body, former British Airways CEO and News Corps director Sir Rod Eddington. She said her side of politics had established Infrastructure Australia to provide impartial advice to governments and industry across the country. And the federal government has ignored the pleas of technology industry bodies and passed a bill that will enable it to take control of private infrastructure as a last resort in the event of a cyber attack. The Security Legislation Amendment Critical Infrastructure Bill 2020 was passed by the Senate on Monday night, with both the major parties backing it. The Greens dissented, terming the bill a greedy little power grab, which did not have the backing of key stakeholders. And missing Sydney businesswoman Melissa Caddick's assets could soon be sold to repay more than $23 million she stole from her friends and clients. Ms Caddick is suspected of stealing millions before she vanished from a Dover Heights home just over a year ago. In a major win for her victims, some of Ms Caddick's assets will be sold, but not all of the money she took will be returned. The $6 million Dover Heights mansion is among Ms Caddick's assets to be carved up after the federal court officially appointed receivers and liquidators. Anthony Coletti, Ms Caddick's husband, now stands to lose his home. The property sale will only be a fraction of what Ms Caddick owed to 72 clients who she stole more than $23 million from over eight years. Ms Caddick spent the money on designer cars, clothing, jewellery and overseas trips instead of investing it. She vanished a day after ASIC raids last November. Some of her remains later washed up on a south coast beach. And Australia's red-hot property market has started to cool, with prices to peak next year and sink 10% in 2023, as higher borrowing costs and natural fatigue set in, the nation's largest mortgage lender predicts. Home prices in Sydney, which will post among the fastest gain in 2021, with a forecast 27% jump, will moderate to a 6% advance in 2022, according to Gareth Aird, head of Australian Economics for the Commonwealth Bank. By 2023, though, the Harbour City's prices will fall 12%, the equal most of any capital city, matching Hobart's projected retreat. Melbourne, which was harder hit by the pandemic-related lockdowns, will post a 17% rise in property prices in 2021, among the smallest gains. Price pressures will persist a bit longer, with the CBA tipping an 8% advance in prices next year before a 10% decline in 2023. Aired forecasts the Reserve Bank of Australia will begin a gradual and shallow cycle from next year, taking the official cash rate from its current record of 0.1% to 1.25% by the third quarter of 2023. And Australia will face a rental affordability crisis as domestic and international borders reopen, with Brisbane hardest hit as insufficient new supply pushes rents up more than 5% a year over the next five years. 
The opening up of domestic borders to interstate travel, national borders to international travel, and the likely return of immigrants and foreign students will put pressure on all of Australia's cities, commercial real estate agency JLL's Q3 2021 apartment market overview shows. But the 7% decline in the national inner-city apartment pipeline in the September quarter from just three months earlier, the latest piece in a picture of decline that has been underway for four years, makes clear the significance of the worsening supply situation as borders reopen. The latest quarterly report shows that the apartment pipeline to 2025 of apartments complete so far this year under construction in marketing with plans approval submitted for approval fell to 62,655 across the mainland capital cities from 67,154 in the June quarter. And the Commonwealth Bank fired a newly recruited employee in part because he discussed his pay with colleagues in, in breach of the company's controversial salary secrecy clauses, contradicting assurances from the chief Matt Komen that the prohibition is not enforced. The finance sector union has launched legal action against Bank over the sacking of the home loan consultant in one of the first challenges related to pay secrecy. The union argues the sacking offended workers' rights to make a workplace complaint or inquiry. In this case, the lender's concerned that the bank was underpaying him or his colleagues. It comes as Labor has promised to outlaw the clauses for all companies if it wins a federal election next year. FSU National Secretary Angela Angrisano said CBA included the prohibition in every contract and members reported that managers are regularly hosing down conversations and reminding people that pay is confidential. And one of Virgin Australia's staff has resigned because of complaints about her behaviour. Virgin Australia's Chief of Corporate Affairs has quit less than a year into the role amid an internal review of her workplace behaviour. CEO Joan Hedlicker announced the resignation of Moksha Watts to staff on Sunday in an internal memo. Ms Hedlicker noted Ms Watts had taken the decision in the midst of an ongoing internal review about her workplace behaviour. Ms Watts was one of six appointments to Virgin's executive leadership team soon after the sale of the airline to US private equity firm Vane Capital. She joined Virgin Australia after a seven-month stint with the Arnott's Group and previously spent four years with Qantas and Jetstar, where she got to know Ms Hedlicker, a former Jetstar CEO. The University of Sydney arts and science graduate also worked as an advisor to former Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in 2013, following stints with Anthony Albanese and Jenny Macklin. Ms Watt's resignation from Virgin came after a significant turnover of staff in the Corporate Affairs Department. The difficult working environment was flagged with human resources as far back as April and employees have continually requested mental health or stress leave to cope with incidents described by these sources, including meetings where it was alleged Ms Watts would openly and aggressively criticise and belittle staffers. And in a year when the scandal-plagued casino industry, damaged by three royal commissions into Crown Resorts, has been forced to clean up its act, poker machine and manufacturer Aristocrat Leisure took the task literally. As the pandemic shut casinos and dented aristocrats' turnover, the $30 billion ASX company filed a patent in the United States for self-disinfecting poker machines. Aristocrat Technology said it could make poker machines or retrofit them with ultraviolet light to rid high-touch surfaces and buttons of COVID-19 and other pathogens. The UV light, which a company insists can be deployed safely by limiting exposure to UV radiation that might cause skin damage or retinal damage, could be activated on demand during idle times or during off hours for a more thorough disinfection with a higher intensity UV light. And Woodside will press ahead with the biggest oil and gas development to be built in Australia in a decade after sanctioning its $16.5 billion Scarborough project off Western Australia. In a move that has enraged green groups, Woodside announced that it had approved the Scarborough development and the associated upgrade of its Pluto liquefied natural gas facility near Caratha, 1,600 kilometres north of Perth. A report by two groups, the Conservation Council of Western Australia and the Australian Institute, suggests the development could lead to a lifetime emissions equivalent to that released by 
by 15 coal-fired power stations. The investment decision is the first major fossil fuel project to be announced since the global climate talks in Glasgow, which urged nations to rapidly cut greenhouse gas emissions. A coalition of environmental organisations opposing Woodside Petroleum's go-ahead for the $16.5 billion Scarborough LNG mega deal in Western Australia have vowed to step up pressure on the oil and gas giants investors and, and financiers. The decision comes despite a furious last-minute ditch by environmentalists to stymie the project after the Conservation Council of Australia last week launched legal action, claiming the project required assessment under federal law. The decision also coincided with news that the boards of Woodside and BHP had agreed to merge their petroleum businesses in a $40 billion deal, which will create one of the world's biggest fossil fuel players. With a price tag of $16.5 billion, Scarborough is said to be the biggest oil and gas development undertaken in Australia since the end of a $275 billion investment splurge 10 years ago. The project will involve the construction of a 430-kilometre pipeline linking the Scarborough gas field to the mainland, as well as a second production train at the Pluto LNG processing plant. At the peak of construction, as many as 3,200 jobs are expected to be created, with a first production slated for 2026. And biotech giant CSL is on the hunt for startups to move into its new Melbourne headquarters as it launches an incubator program designed to commercialise Australian ideas and keep research on shore. The $444.5 billion coronavirus vaccine maker has inked a deal with the University of Melbourne and Walter and Liza Hall Institute to launch a $95 million incubator project, which will also be supported by the Victorian Government's Breakthrough Victoria Fund. The incubator, which is set to launch in 2023, will have space for up to 40 Australian companies that are looking to move their early-stage research towards commercialisation. The companies will be based at CSL's new global headquarters on Melbourne's Elizabeth Street and have access to office space, equipment and lab facilities. The collaboration comes as the country focuses on manufacturing its own medical products, including vaccines, following the COVID-19 pandemic. CSL Chief Executive Paul Perrault said the program was also designed to help researchers learn how to bring new products to market. And corporate regulator Joe Longo has urged consumers to show a high degree of caution towards the cryptocurrency craze, urging people to be careful about putting their savings into an unregulated asset class that many do not fully understand, and admitting the regulator is virtually powerless to intervene and consumers are on their own. Mr Longo, Chair of the Australian Securities Investments Commission, or ASIC, on Monday said the phenomenal cryptocurrency boom had become too big to ignore, but consumers should be aware of the risk before plunging into crypto. Following last week's Reserve Bank warning about the risk of crypto assets plunging, Mr Longo on Monday said it was not ASIC's job to stop people investing in cryptocurrencies, but they should be aware of the risk. He said there had been extraordinary demand for crypto assets from investors and consumers, fuelled by ultra-low interest rates and the pandemic, and warned that consumers were on their own, given the lack of any regulatory protections. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Frontier Pets founder Diana Scott to discuss how Frontier Pets is helping put an end to the 500 million Australian animals stuck in factory farming and how they've created the additional sources of income for Australian farmers. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about how Australia will manage the recovery. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 